Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, welcome to the LSE for those of you who are visiting. And this is one of those occasions when I wonder if we have any students at the LSE who are not from Hong Kong. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, we've had, of course, uh, Donald Chang here in the uh, not too distant past, uh, and we're delighted uh, to have his brother John Chang um, here uh, this afternoon. Um, the Finance Secretary of Hong Kong is a post with a very distinguished history, a lot of very distinguished uh, holders of it, uh, and Mr Chang is, of course, not by any means the least distinguished of those. He's been in the job for three years now and is, of course, responsible for the budget of the SAR. Uh, personally, as a British taxpayer, I am delighted that he's here um, because a little bit of fiscal discipline from Hong Kong would be rather welcome in this country at the moment. Um, and I was pleased to discover that he has been here talking to the government. Though, of course, this particular week, with the Conservatives all in Birmingham at their conference, the government is entirely run by Liberal Democrats, um, which creates a rather strange uh, impression. But while the cat's away, uh, the Liberal Democrat mice uh, can play. Um, but we are delighted uh, that, once again, a senior representative of the Hong Kong government has chosen to come to speak at the LSE. We greatly value our connections with the city. Uh, we nearly always have 300 or so Hong Kong students uh, in the school, and this year is no exception. We have a very distinguished group of alumni there, led by people like Charles Lee, who was chairman of the Stock Exchange, Justice Bob Ribeiro, who is the senior judge in the Court of Final Appeal, and many, many others. Uh, and this connection between the LSE and Hong Kong is one we value greatly. And so it's a particular pleasure for me uh, to welcome the Finance Secretary here today. Uh, unfortunately, I have some bad news for you, which is that he was educated at MIT and Harvard, um, so really had no formal education at all to speak of. Um, but um, in spite of that, he has done very well uh, in his career in public management. Um, uh, I should tell him that he is speaking to a mixed audience of Hong Kong uh, Public and Social Service Society and the uh, Finance Society, so half of the audience can add up, uh, the other half may not be able to. But um, with no more ado, let me introduce Mr John Chan. Thank you very much, Sir Howard. Uh, I think I'd like to clarify a couple of things before I, I begin. Uh, first of all, I'm not related to Donald, <laughs> but we were, we were classmates uh, at Harvard uh, and back in uh, 1982. That's before I, went, I returned to Hong Kong to work in, in government. Uh, the second point that I'd like to uh, clarify before I begin is that uh, yes indeed I went to MIT and Harvard but I feel that uh, everything that I have learned I learned in high school <laughs> <laughs> so 
So distinguished guests, uh, students, friends, ladies and gentlemen, good evening to you all. It is indeed a great pleasure for me to be here at LSE, the prestigious London School of Economics. And I'm also very pleased to be part of your Asian Business and Finance Elite Series. For decades, many of Hong Kong's brightest young minds, as has been mentioned, have been attending LSE. And I'm pleased to see that this trend is continuing today and how impressed I am with LSE's interest in Hong Kong and also your knowledge in our city. I'm truly impressed, but I'm not altogether surprised. Over the years, actually roughly 150 years, Hong Kong has evolved from what was once famously described by Lord Palmerston as the barren rock into an international business and financial center. And we are still evolving at quite a pace. Our unique and rapid development makes Hong Kong an interesting test case for economists around the world. The late Milton Friedman was particularly enthusiastic about Hong Kong's philosophy of a free economy. Mr. Friedman once said, and I quote, if you want to see capitalism in action, go to Hong Kong, end of quote. He had long argued that economic freedom is key to economic prosperity. Hong Kong, recognized as the world's freest economy by both the Heritage Foundation in the US and the Canada-based Fraser Institute, seemed to prove this point rapidly transforming itself into a wealthy metropolis. Some of the attributes that help define our economic freedom in no particular order are, one, free flow of ideas and information, including free speech and a free and unfettered media. Two, free flow of capital with a freely convertible currency. Three, free flow of talent through liberal immigration laws. Four, low and simple tax system with profits tax now capped at 16.5% and salaries tax at a top rate of 15% and we have no VAT, no GST, no death duties, no capital gains tax, and zero wine duty. <laughs> and lastly, we have a highly transparent regulatory environment. But despite these economic freedoms, and perhaps because of our open and externally oriented economy, Hong Kong has not been spared a direct hit from the global financial crisis over the last couple of years. I'm pleased to say that today, our economy is back on its feet. Unemployment has returned to pre-crisis level of just over 4%, and we are forecasting robust GDP growth for this year of between 5 and 6%, and I would not be surprised if we hit over 6%. Hong Kong remains third in the City of London's latest Global Financial Centers Index, published last month. The index also shows that Hong Kong has been gaining ground in this last round, but our competitors are pursuing us forcefully, seeking to close the gap. And so there is no room for complacency. So how has the global financial turmoil affected Hong Kong as an international financial center? And what do these changes mean for the rest of the world? I would like to discuss this from four main perspectives. First, the local perspective, 
basically what are the lessons learned during the financial crisis. The second point is cross-boundary collaboration, how we should grasp new opportunities to strengthen financial ties with our neighbors in the Guangdong province and throughout our immediate hinterland, which is the dynamic Pearl River Delta. As an extension, point three will discuss our closer financial integration with our nation China since the onset of the global financial tsunami. The fourth and final area is our growing international connectivity, a key area for Hong Kong's small and outward-looking economy. So first, the domestic front. Financial services is one of the four pillar industries of our economy. The others are trade and logistics, tourism and professional services. Our financial services area learned valuable lessons during the Asian financial crisis about a decade ago. Since then, we have enhanced our regulatory framework, making sure that our banks were well capitalized and exercised prudent lending practices. This work helped shield our economy from the global financial crisis, during which none of our banks failed and the financial services sector remains in relatively good shape. However, new lessons need to be learned. In particular, the global financial crisis highlighted the vulnerability of investors to risky products, suspect sales tactics, as well as unrealistic financial goals. One thing we need to do is to provide better protection for investors. If he were alive today, investor protection is a term that Milton Friedman probably would not like to hear about from Hong Kong particularly but it is a sign of the times, and Hong Kong is not alone. Not that we're leaving behind that caveat mTOR plaque. We're actually seeking to empower the investors to make the right choices. Britain has proposed establishing the Consumer Protection and Markets Authority, and in the US, there is the new Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. In Hong Kong, we have proposed setting up an Investor Education Council, which we hope will begin operating soon after the legislative amendment to be introduced next year, as well as a Financial Dispute Resolution Center, which is expected to come into operation by the end of April 2012. The latter will help investors settle their disputes with financial institutions through a simple and quick resolution mechanism. We have also proposed legislation that will require listed companies to make available more information for investors to make better informed decisions. This will also enhance the transparency as well as the quality of our equity market. During the financial tsunami, we introduced a 100% bank deposit guarantee to maintain confidence in our banks. This full deposit guarantee will expire at the end of this year. From next January, our regular deposit protection scheme will be enhanced, under which the protection limit will be increased fivefold to $500,000. The, the enhancement will facilitate a smooth exit from the full deposit guarantee while continuing to give people peace of mind regarding their bank deposits. For the insurance industry, we are considering establishing an insurance policy protection fund. The aim is to improve insurance market stability 
as well as to safeguard the interests of policyholders should an insurer default. We are also consulting the public on the establishment of an independent insurance authority. This would bring Hong Kong more in line with international practices and enhance the protection of policyholders. All this will help to strengthen investor confidence and establish a warning system that would sound an alarm bell in a timely manner. Now to my second point, cross-boundary collaboration. Hong Kong's relationship with neighboring Guangdong province has been the lifeblood of our city from the early days of development. Our strategic location at the crossroads of global trade in the heart of East Asia and on the, south, and on the southern tip of China has made us a special place for commerce. Today, it is impossible to talk about post-financial crisis Hong Kong without mentioning the China factor. In January 2009, the central government in Beijing unveiled plans to establish the Pearl River Delta, including Guangdong province and the special administrative regions of Hong Kong, as well as, as Macau, as one of the most competitive regions in the world. In April this year, this ambitious plans took a giant leap forward in the form of the Framework Agreement on Hong Kong-Guangdong Cooperation. It was signed in Beijing, and this was the first agenda on Hong Kong-Guangdong Cooperation to be endorsed by the State Council. The key to this accord is that it breaks through the invisible barrier that stand in the way of the joint development of Hong Kong and Guangdong. The Framework Agreement covers a range of specific policies and facilitates the free flow of people, of goods, capital, as well as information. Importantly for financial services, it supports also the establishment of cross-boundary subsidiaries for financial institutions from Hong Kong. Under this agreement, government and financial regulators of both Hong Kong and Guangdong will also be able to explore certain specific work plans, including exploring new arrangements for bank financing and issue of renminbi bonds in Hong Kong by Guangdong Enterprises, and encouraging more Guangdong companies to list on the Hong Kong stock market. Currently, mainland Chinese companies make up about one-third of the companies listed on our stock market, which is the third largest bourse in Asia and the seventh largest in the world in terms of market capitalization. Many of these initiatives will be for what we call early and pilot implementation, with a view to being expanded throughout China. This leads to the third point, which is closer integration throughout the mainland of China. At a time when markets in Europe and the US are still feeling the pinch from the global financial turmoil, Asia, and in particular China, have been relatively resilient to the economic downturn. Reflecting the emergence of a new global economic order, economists are discussing not whether, but when the mainland currency, which is the renminbi, will become an international currency, and perhaps in even in the longer run, a reserve currency. As China's most important international financial center, the internationalization of the renminbi is an area that will be vitally important to Hong Kong. While the central government maintains a closed capital account and tight monetary controls in the mainland, Hong Kong has a distinct advantage under the one country, two systems principle.
We maintain our own freely convertible currency, and at the same time, we have been able to establish a broad-ranging infrastructure for offshore renminbi business. Renminbi banking in Hong Kong began in 2004 and has been gathering momentum since then. Today, some 80 banks offer renminbi banking services, including deposits, remittances, credit cards, and checking accounts. In Hong Kong, total renminbi deposits amount to over 130 billion renminbi. A major recent development has been the expansion of renminbi trade settlement scheme. It was only in July last year that the central government began testing the water for currency liberalization by introducing a renminbi trade settlement scheme. The scheme started with Hong Kong, Macau, and the 10 ASEAN countries being able to settle trade in renminbi with five cities, five cities only in the mainland. In June this year, the scheme was significantly expanded. The central government announced that businesses all around the world would be able to settle trade with the mainland using renminbi. At the same time, mainland locations covered by the scheme were increased from just five to 20 provinces as well as cities. In the first half of this year, the People's Bank of China estimated cross-border trade settlement in renminbi at more than 70 billion renminbi, which is more than 8 billion euros. Hong Kong accounted for about 53 billion renminbi, or about three quarters of the total. This is surely a positive start, and there is huge potential for further growth. Today's figures represents just a drop in the ocean when you consider that the mainland's total external trade topped 15 trillion renminbi last year. Hong Kong has the full backing of the central government in developing an offshore renminbi business. Our freely convertible currency, our deep pool of local and international financial talent and cluster of international banks makes Hong Kong an ideal conduit for the wider use of renminbi outside the mainland. As demand for renminbi inevitably grows, Hong Kong's attributes as a free and open economy and ability to handle overseas liquidity will help avoid causing undue shocks to the mainland's evolving financial market. A particularly dynamic growth area has been Hong Kong's renminbi bond market. So far, there have been a total of some 20 renminbi bond issues in Hong Kong with a combined value of more than 40 billion renminbi. Also last year, the central government issued its first sovereign bonds in Hong Kong worth 6 billion renminbi. This was a big thumbs up for Hong Kong's financial sector. Most of these renminbi bond issues have been well oversubscribed, indicating strong demand from investors both locally as well as overseas. So this brings me to the fourth and final part of my talk, how can Hong Kong play a greater role in the international financial community? I have mentioned the expanding renminbi bond market and its attractiveness to local and international investors. I've also talked about the renminbi trade settlement scheme and Hong Kong's strength as a renminbi trade settlement center. We will continue to encourage more overseas companies to use Hong Kong as a center for settling the mainland trade in renminbi instead of using a third currency. 
Hong Kong was also the first place outside the mainland to have an interbank market for renminbi. In addition to this development, businesses anywhere in the world can now open an account in Hong Kong and freely exchange renminbi. All this activity is giving rise to a greater range of financial products in our marketplace. Another area that we are developing is Hong Kong's potential as a capital-raising center for overseas businesses. You need look no further than the golden arches of a familiar American fast food chain for a sign of our changing times. In Hong Kong on October 19th this year, McDonald's Corporation became the first non-financial foreign company to issue a renminbi corporate bond. Even though the issue was the mere 200 million renminbi, this represents the start of a whole new funding channel for overseas companies looking to raise capital for their China operations. We also see great potential in encouraging more foreign companies, especially from emerging economies, to list in Hong Kong. Russia is one such market. Not only is Russia a geographical neighbor of China, it is also a primary commodities exporter, while China is a major consumer of these commodities. In January this year, the aluminum company UC Russell became the first Russian firm to list on the Hong Kong stock market, raising 2.2 billion US dollars. If you believe what you read in newspapers, a number of other Russian firms are also considering listing in Hong Kong. Not only are the Russians coming, many other companies have also expressed great interest. Indeed, we welcome firms from all over the world to tap Hong Kong's fundraising potential, obviously including British companies. So ladies and gentlemen, when our chief executive spoke here in this same lecture theater in November 2008, I believe, he talked about the challenges and opportunities presented by the onset of the global financial crisis. So I'm pleased to have had this chance to talk a little bit about some of the ways that we have been turning those challenges into opportunities over the past two years. We have been learning new lessons from the financial crisis. We have been building stronger links within our nation. And we have been reaching out to new markets around the world. I'm confident that Hong Kong will continue to play a major role as a global financial center alongside London, alongside New York. I wish you all every success with the Asian Business and Finance Elite Series. I also hope that you will come visit Hong Kong soon to see for yourself some of the remarkable opportunities in our part of the world. Indeed, seeing is believing. And if you should find it convincing enough to believe, you may be interested in staying on with us a little longer in Hong Kong and meeting these remarkable opportunities head on. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that very wide-ranging presentation. Uh, we are fortunate that we have retained uh, the Financial Secretary uh, for some time for some questions. Um, so I'm, I'm going to hand it straight over to the audience. If you could put your hands up and also when you ask your questions, say um, who you are. And if you're at the LSE, perhaps give the grades for your last exams. That would probably... <laughs> uh, 
help us know if your question's worth um, answering uh, or not. Um, whilst you are thinking, let me just ask you uh, a, a question myself. Um, one of the big issues, you, you referred to the financial centre lead tables and, and Hong Kong's continued um, high position, but one thing that is frequently debated is just how the competitive position of the different Asian financial centres will settle down. I mean, you've got Hong Kong with its traditional strengths you've described. Uh, you have Singapore, which has established a, a particularly strong position in asset management and hedge funds. Then you've got Shanghai growing, and of course Beijing itself, and the Chinese government clearly promoting both, and especially Shanghai. How do you see, looking, looking forward, sort of five or ten years, where the competitive position of these centres might settle and how Hong Kong will kind of distinguish itself in that competition? I mean, I don't think it's a winner-takes-all competition. It doesn't seem to me, but I mean, undoubtedly, they're all going to develop in different ways. How would you see yourself positioned there? Uh, oftentimes, when I do this... Uh the discussions at different places, people always raise the issue about those, that S word, you know, all those Singapore, Shanghai, <laughs> Saigon, <maybe>. Saigon, yes. <laughs> Shenzhen, all in the same league. <laughs> no, actually, seriously, uh, we, we actually have a very good working relationship with all of these, uh, all, all of these uh, different cities because Nowadays, we are not really looking at a zero-sum game anymore. We are always looking to grow a much bigger pie uh, everywhere. And in fact, you know, with, with Singapore, for example, uh, we work very closely with this neighbor. And I, I mentioned earlier about the 100% deposit guarantee. We are working together. We are trying to exit this together with, with Singapore. Uh, in fact, we, are, we have been in discussion with Singapore and Malaysia for the last two years so that we can exit together because it's quite a difficult thing who should exit first. Mm. I mean, exiting first may not be advantageous, uh, whereas whoever came in there first maybe have the advantage and so forth. So we have discussed it and said, let's all exit together. So we, we have a very good working uh, cooperative relationship. And with Shanghai, uh, it's, it's even, I mean, it's even closer relationship because we, uh, as I often said, uh, Shanghai and Hong Kong will be the twin engines of growth for our nation. Uh, what, what is quite clear is the complementary relationship between Hong Kong and Shanghai. Shanghai is a really powerful domestic center uh, that, that has a lot of the advantages in terms of, uh, of its uh, domestic strength, in terms of its network within uh, the nation of China. Whereas Hong Kong, we have been operating in the international arena uh, for quite some time. And in terms of international connectivity, we have the advantage there. So working together, that complementarity is near perfection. And, and we would look forward to working even closer and actually, we had a, a very useful seminar in Shanghai about a month or so ago. And I was on the same stage with the, the, the vice mayor of Shanghai, who was once the vice chairman of uh, CSRC, 
the securities regulatory body, and we both recognize, and we were both, we both agree uh, that that indeed will be the direction that will be moving forward. Thank you. Yes, uh, man in the sort of white ish sweater. There, thanks. Um, hi, uh, my name is Robert. I study management. Um, you mentioned that the the market for corporate bonds that are denominated and settled in Ren, in renminbi is growing uh, particularly fast. With the McDonald's example that you said, um, when do you, how how quickly is it growing, and when do you see the market really booming for for renminbi corporate bonds? Uh, it's a recent phenomenon. I mean, renminbi denominated bonds have been in China for some time, but in terms of uh, that using the bond in Hong Kong, we've only, in the last couple of years or so, we've had about 20 issues, uh, raising over $40 billion. Uh, but what is exciting is what I mentioned in my speech, uh, is that McDonald's is raising renminbi denominated bonds in Hong Kong, even though it's a very small sum of $200 million. Uh, but it means that, that there is a channel of of raising the money and applying that to the operation on the mainland. There was a, another bond issue that was quite in interesting also to, to a lot of people, which becomes an indicator, is the Hopewell Infrastructure Bond. Uh, Hopewell is a infrastructure company in, in Hong Kong. They are doing highways, they're doing uh, power generators in, in, uh, in China. And they raised, uh, there was the bond issue of about 1.38 billion renminbi. Uh, the interest rate was about 2.8, 2.9%. 2.8, is very is quite attractive to Hong Kong investors because the Hong HSBC is only giving about 0.01% interest to people. So 2.98 is pretty pretty good return. And for a company like Hopewell to uh, to pay interest of 2.98, that's very attractive. If they were to raise that to raise that money in the mainland, they may have to pay double that kind of uh, interest rate. So that would become an indicator for a lot of the, the companies uh, when they start thinking about raising money in B for use in, in the mainland. But the, the key in all of that is how they could use that money uh, back, back, back in the mainland, or whether they would be allowed to, to bring that money back Yeah, go behind the stripy sleeve. <laughs> Hi, it's a great honor to be asking questions here. Um, I'm an LSE student. I'm studying economics as well. And having heard that UC Rizal uh, listened in Hong Kong not long ago, um, I know that UC Rizal hasn't got, uh, it wasn't in a very good state when it first listened in Hong Kong. It was heavily in debt, and then since the IPO, it hasn't been, um, well, it has, the, the, the share price hasn't been above the uh, issue price. Um, yeah, many, many, many people question whether or not Hong Kong should actually attract uh, these kinds of companies to, to be listed in Hong Kong. And, uh, the, and, and I'm just wondering why are we very interested in um, uh, asking Russian companies, uh, especially raw materials companies, to be listing in Hong Kong, uh, even when they are not in a very good state. And the second question is that, um, how is Hong Kong going to be able to compete 
with the LSE, I mean, uh, for LSE, I mean the London Stock, uh, Stock Exchange, uh, where most of <laughs> where where most of the uh, raw material, uh, global raw material companies are actually listed there. How are we going to be uh, able to compete with the London Stock Exchange? <laughs> uh, we actually welcome any company who wants to come list in Hong Kong. Uh, in fact, last year uh, we have quite a large, quite a large number of companies coming in, not just Russian companies, French companies, uh, and we've been in discussion with some Brazilian companies. Uh, why do they pick Hong Kong? I mean, that, 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 that's a choice. Uh, they could have picked Singapore, uh, they could have picked Tokyo, uh, but they think that in Asia, this is something that would make sense to them. Especially nowadays, people are trading 24 hours a day, so after you finish in London, you may go to New York, and then if you still don't want to sleep, you can come to Hong Kong. <laughs> and then you can start again with London. And so, you know, this is kind of the, 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 the trend. And, you know, we welcome all different companies coming in. Uh, and in, in many ways, the success of a company is really not determined by the price that, that you get in the stock exchange. But, but recently, uh, the price of Brussels has not been doing too badly. Uh, and you know that, that there's a lot of different factors that could affect that. So we are not just uh, attracting Russian companies, but in fact we are interested in attracting more companies from all different emerging economies. What we've seen since the, we've been actually looking at the issue since uh, 2007, that our traditional markets in the U.S. and in Europe has basically changed. It's basically changing. And, and that, that could be a, a structural change that, that may not be reversible. And for Hong Kong to sustain ourselves in the future, we are looking to emerging economies, such as India, I've been to India, to, to Russia, Middle East, Brazil, all different companies. And, and these are the, the, the newly emerging economies, and they have a lot of, you know, economically speaking, very exciting places. And so we would like to, uh, to attract the, the companies to come to Hong Kong. But coming to Hong Kong is not a you know, non-conditional kind of a thing. They have to satisfy the stock exchange. They have to satisfy the SFC in terms of the quality of what they are, what they are selling in, uh, in Hong Kong. A few years ago, uh, Oleg Deripaska, the main owner of Rusal, did a course in economics and finance at the LSE, so you better be careful what you say about his uh, company. Yeah, man at the, <laughs> bit further on, short sleeve, move that. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name's Ian Sheridan. I was a student here in 96, um, ancient history, and my dissertation was on the collapse of bearings, which obviously collapsed for a number of reasons, including the fact it wasn't terribly well governed in Singapore. But uh, my, my question is really in terms of long-term patterns, do you think that a global company in the future would look for a tri-listing, by which I mean that they may look for some positioning in Asia, perhaps Hong Kong, something in Europe, and then perhaps um, on one of the New York exchanges? I would not be surprised. I mean, as people uh, get into the 24-hour trading patterns, uh, you really want to, to, to trace to, to, to trace the, the, the trade uh, around the clock. And so I would not be surprised that there would be sort of 
this thing in, in, in all in all in all three bosses at the same time. And but I think they would need to look at the the, the specific situation of all the different firms. And by the way, Oleg's a very good friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but just that. Uh, thanks. Uh, thank you. My name is Sandeep Bansal, and I'm currently doing research in philosophy and economics. Uh, I appreciate the presentation. Uh, I was hoping that you'll comment on um, currency valuation in the trade dynamic. There seems to be a lot of debate in the headlines concerning um, countries manipulating their currencies to promote exports, and, and I was hoping to get some kind of uh, view on, on your part. Thank you. Uh, you have any country in mind in particular? Uh, <laughs> Took a wild guess. <laughs> Took a wild guess, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think for whatever country, I think what they look for would be <coughs> stability in terms of what, of, of what they're doing. Uh, and I don't think there's anybody who could uh, have a, a better judgment as to uh, their, in terms of their stage of development than their own country. And I think whatever they do, uh, they would really need to uh, look at you know, where, where they are at in terms of the determining uh, how they could attain that state of stability. Uh, you know, but right, right now, I, I see a lot of uh, noises about uh, different you know, currency manipulation and so forth. But a, a lot of that, a lot of that comes out from uh, you know, the that they wish to, to get into that protectionist state, a lot of it, a lot of what they call the self-defense, and I, I, I see that a lot of it is, is rather irrational. Uh, but just behind, yeah, the red and blue there, that's it, and then I've seen you up there. Hi, I'm actually from King's College London, my name is Kevin, thanks for coming today and thank you for your time. Well, I saw that earlier you mentioned about Milton Friedman and about how his view on the Hong Kong is a free market to operate. But I'm sure you're aware that um, he actually mentioned in the Wall Street Journal in the 2006 Hong Kong wrong, actually. Because actually, reason obviously the example would be your, I mean, the, you took an attack on the property market in Hong Kong. So, I mean, my first question for you is can you please tell me more about what, what kind of position that Hong Kong government will take in terms of small market or I mean, big market, small government or small market, big government? That's my first question. And my second question is obviously in 1990, the GDP of China, I mean, GDP of Hong Kong is actually 25% of China's, but last year, the Hong Kong GDP is actually 4.2%. So, I mean, obviously, it's, there's a huge reducing of GDP in terms of Hong Kong and China. So, I mean, what is can you tell me something that Hong Kong can do and that can be, sorry, I mean, can you tell me something that Hong Kong can do that China cannot do to make us that we are still very competitive in, in terms of in the Hong Kong market? Thank you. Thank you. I'll have a word with security later about how we managed to let a King student in, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> On your first question, uh, Hong Kong still maintains the principle of big market, small government. Uh, I mean, you can easily see that in Hong Kong, our public sector, we try to keep that under 20%, so that the private sector will be four times 
that of the public sector. Uh, and and we've, we've been able to maintain that for quite, quite a long time. And, you know, and basically, I want to keep it at about 20% level, which I think is about the proper level. And this past year, my expenditure was about 300 billion Hong Kong dollars. Uh, and you, in your second question, you talk about how we have, um, our, our GDP has reduced vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, chi the chi Chinese GDP. I mean, that, that's not surprising when the denominator gets bigger, the percentage gets smaller. Someone behind, yeah, second row from the back, a gray shirt, yeah. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chan, for, for your lecture. Uh, this is George, I uh, work in the city, and uh, originally I'm from Shenzhen, so uh, in the future, I would like to uh, have a chance to work in Hong Kong at some stage and possibly living there for uh, many, time, uh, many years to come. <laughs> but uh, the last thing I want is to buy a property in Hong Kong and become a negative millionaire uh, <laughs> very soon. Uh, my worry is uh, because of exchange rate pegging to dollar and so you have to import the uh, very loose monetary uh, system from the United States and uh, the near zero uh, interest rate. And uh, that is apparently fueling a uh, property price bubble and uh, not, probably not as yet as, as uh, great as the uh, property bubble back in 1996 but uh, probably just a few years apart. So I just wonder uh, what's your view uh, on the uh, exchange rate and the uh, housing bubble, and maybe if there's a relationship. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, are you welcome to come to Hong Kong <laughs> With, uh, to work there, to live there, and you know, if you get the right job, I'm sure you will be able to buy a flat without any problem. <laughs> uh, yes, in, indeed. Uh, the the interest rate is, has been near zero for quite some time. Uh, uh, in fact, I, I don't have much to do with our monetary policy because Ben Bernanke does that for me. <laughs> uh, we've been linked to the US dollar since uh, 1983. And we, we have seen this situation before, but actually, if you just count, uh, in the last 20 years, we must have seen seven, eight crises. And we have dealt, dealt with that. Uh, with, and, and, and in terms of our link, link to the US dollar, and our economy have remained stable. Our economy has been strong. And in terms of uh, uh, our reserve, uh, that, that has been going up right now, is, um, up to about $500 billion in my fiscal reserve. So yes, we, we recognize that uh, the close to zero interest rate, we recognize that the, uh, the ample liquidity, all of that is affecting uh, the people's desire uh, to, to, in terms of, of the demand for, for housing in Hong Kong. Uh, and unfortunately, in the last few years, the supply has been low. That's why uh, in this year alone, I have come out with uh, two, three times different policies, different initiatives to, to, to make sure uh, that we grow in a uh, uh, stable, uh, healthy manner, uh, in, including increasing the supply of land in Hong Kong. This year alone, we've already had eight auctions, and there are two more coming up at least. Uh, we are, we're demanding greater transparency from the developers who are selling the flats in Hong Kong. 
we are implementing a number of fiscal measures, such as increasing the stamp duty and all these other measures. And I'm also asking the monetary authority to, uh, to, to enhance their, their, their liquidity ratio and all of that, so to make sure when they do lend out money, they will be doing it in a, in a very prudential way. So I hope that would help our housing market grow in a more healthy way. I uh, want just stand there. Yeah, I'll take that one. Yep, thanks. Thank you. Um, my name is Chris Ho. I'm an LIC student studying government economics this first year. And I actually have two questions. The first question is that um, you have talked about Hong Kong position as the freest economy in the world. But um, do you think the reasons, like the setting up of the minimum wage in Hong Kong, will seriously affect Hong Kong position, like advantage in this area? And the, another question is that um, Hong Kong has a large amount of foreign reserve, but it's like too much, and politicians have been attacking where that the government should use part of this foreign reserve into our budget and to help like the low income, lower income um, people. So, what do you think about this? Thank you. Minimum wage. Uh, one one of the reasons that that is important that we set up a minimum wage is to give adequate incentive for, for people to go to work. Uh, because right, right now we have a, a pretty good, uh, what we call CSSA, which is sort of a welfare system. And if the, the wages that people get, uh, in, well, the income that people can get from, from, from welfare is uh, higher than what people can get from their normal wages, then there would not be any incentive for people to work. So. What we are doing here is really to set up really a minimum wage, and this is not going to be something that would be uh, uh, that would interfere you know, in, in terms of the, the market operation in, in, in a big way. Uh, and, uh, and then again, if you look around, maybe you can tell me which country does not have a minimum wage. I mean, you can look at it that way, and you also, the second question you asked about the foreign reserve. I think you. You need a fiscal reserve. In my fiscal reserve, I have about $500 billion. Uh, I have always maintained that uh, in terms of the reserve, the more the better, because you never know what kind of situation you would get yourself into. Uh, in the Asian financial crisis, in six years' time, we used up about 40% of our reserve. That was uh, quite a few years ago. And now with the, the kind of the, the, the speed of some of these crises that is coming, I think we better be prepared uh, now than, 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 uh, than having problems later. But that does not mean that we would be mean about our expenditure. In the past three years, when I was the, I have been the financial secretary for three years since, uh, since the, and in this past three years, the GDP growth has been about 5%. But my expenditure have grown by about 33%. So we would need, we would spend whatever money that we, we think we consider it would be necessary to spend on the people of Hong Kong. But meanwhile, we let, let's try to build up a strong reserve. And the reserve is actually for the future, and for, for your generation, so that when, when, when you come back to Hong Kong, you would have a healthy reserve to the start off with in terms of dealing with the problems that we may be facing in the future.
ever you do conclude you have too many reserves, I think I know a government who could quite use them, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a woman just down there, and I think this would better be the last one. Yeah, two, two rows down. That's you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm, I'm Gwendolyn from LSE. I'm doing economics currently. And um, Hong Kong has been enjoying a um, high degree of autonomy. And you mentioned that Hong Kong will become the um, renminbi offshore center. And uh, I was just wondering, is there any risk that you've, um, the Hong Kong government foresee in um, where Hong Kong becoming the um, offshore center for renminbi in terms of politics or other economics uh, aspects? And what measures uh, have the government considered to um, combat against this risk or challenges? Maybe you can take a lesson from, uh, from London back in the 50s and 60s when it became the Euro dollar center. There was not a really a politics, a political question that arose at that time. That was as a result of American regulation. Thank you very much. I'm going to ask uh, Richard Coe to propose a vote of thanks now on behalf of the societies who've organised today's event. Um, it is indeed my greatest honour to stand here in front of all my fellow students to say this. And on behalf of LSE, SU, Hong Kong Public Affairs and Social Service Society and Finance Society, I want to say a huge thank you to Mr. John Zhang for coming to LSE this evening, even amid of the tube strike, which definitely is not that pleasant. Regardless of which school, which uni you come from, I'm sure you enjoyed um, John's speech as much as I did. Jeffrey, the Finance Society President, and I are especially proud to be able to organize this event, to see one of our Hong Kong SAR officials come in to the prestigious LSE, giving a lecture to students not only in Hong Kong, but also students from all over the world. Mr. John Tsang, thank you very much for coming. I hope you like LSE, perhaps slightly more than MIT and Harvard. <laughs> um, as such, Hong Kong Pass and Finance Society have prepared a gift from LSE. And we, have ho we hope that you'll like it, and hopefully we'll remind you of LSE when you're back in Hong Kong. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming. Good evening and goodbye. Thank you.